stories about a farmer. He went each week uh, to the farmer's market to sell, among other things that he had raised and grown on his farm. Um, he would sell cottage cheese and apple butter that he had uh, made on his farm. And he would carry that to the farmer's market in two large uh, tubs, um, which he would um, then ladle uh, the cottage cheese or the apple butter into smaller containers that the customers would, would bring. One day he got to the farmer's market and discovered that uh, he had forgotten one of his ladles. Um, he felt he had no choice but to use just the single ladle for both of um, the products, both the cottage cheese as well as the apple butter. Before long, he couldn't tell which was which. It makes me sad to say it, but I'm afraid that too often is a picture of us. It's a too often a picture of the American church. As Christ followers, we find ourselves um, too easily conforming to the prevailing culture around us. We give in to those cultural pressures that are incompatible with the lordship of Jesus Christ. And before long, we end up not being able to tell who is a Christian and who is not. <laughs> One of the major themes um, that you'll find in Scripture is that God is calling out a people for himself, um, for his possession and for his glory, and that he summons his people to be different um, from the world around them. In the Old Testament book of Leviticus, for example, I mean, you will find God repeatedly telling his people of Israel, be holy because I am holy. In 1 Peter chapter 1, we're told, as he who called you is holy, so also be holy in all of your conduct. <laughs> Not to be outdone, <laughs> the Apostle Paul says basically the same thing, same thing in three different uh, ways in three different times in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. In, uh, the first time, 2 Corinthians 6, 14, he says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. And then a few verses down in verse 17, he says, therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them and touch no unclean thing. And then finally, down in chapter seven, verse one, Apostle Paul writes this, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. In other words, <laughs> Paul is telling us that as Christ followers, we have been called to be radically distinct. Radically distinct. I want to invite you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We continue in our studies. We've been going through this very personal, very interesting, uh, oftentimes overlooked book of 2 Corinthians. This morning we come to our passage, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, we'll start in verse 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Look with me. Paul writes, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? 
What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has a temple of God with idols? And you notice there the five questions that Paul asks here in these verses. Do you notice those? Each of them anticipate a negative answer. Taken together, they reinforce the incompatibility of the believer with the unbeliever. The first two questions, they deal with um, what you might want to call moral, the partnership of moral opposites. Um, you say, what, what is righteousness and wickedness, what do they have in common? Or what, fe- what fellowship can light have with, with darkness? They have nothing in common. They have no fellowship with each other. I mean, the believer who is characterized by righteousness and light, they are driven by a different set of values than the unbeliever who is characterized by wickedness and darkness. While the believer follows God's will, the unbeliever doesn't. So there can be no true partnership. And then the next couple of questions, um, they deal with uh, a partnership uh, of, of, of the impact incompatibility of, of personal opposites. He says, what harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? That title, Belial, is the name for the devil. And like the first two questions, the expected answer is... <laughs> Listen, there's no harmony between Christ and Satan. There's nothing in common between the believer and the unbeliever. And then he asks the fifth question. The fifth question is one of religious opposites, which, which really goes to the heart of the problem in the church in Corinth. He asks, what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? You have to understand, in Corinth, they were known for, it was a home of two renowned temples that housed two famous um, um, idols. These pagan temples were the uh, focal point of the social life there in Corinth. I mean, if if you were going to be in the popular crowd, I mean, if you were going to be in the in crowd there in Corinth, you would would dine and you would participate in temple worship at those pagan temples. Such participation, if you did it, would give credibility to those idols in those temples. So what was a Christ follower in Corinth to do? Well, Paul says they were to have nothing to do with those idols. See, you have to understand the point of each of these questions is the complete incompatibility uh, between Christianity and our prevailing culture. And that's why Paul gives us that command he does up in verse 14. Look again with me at that command. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Paul here, if you're not familiar with it, he's referring to an Old Testament law from Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 10, that forbids the practice of yoking together an ox and a donkey. Um, two different, two completely unequal animals. Um, you say, well, why? Why was that uh, against the law in the Old Testament? Well, because of the, the different natures, because of the different uh, sizes, different strengths of, uh, between an ox and a donkey. 
I mean, just look at the two animals. <laughs> Their unequal partnership will result in confusion, and instead of working together, what will end up happening is they'll end up working against one another. And so Paul here, what he's doing is he's applying that Old Testament law to believers. As Christ followers, catch this, we step to the drumbeat of the kingdom of God, right? Unbelievers don't. They step to a drumbeat of the world and to the prevailing culture around us. We have incompatible loyalties which make a true partnership impossible, Paul says. Back in January of 1995, an earthquake measuring 6.9 on a 7-point scale struck Kobe, Japan. It occurred when two plates on a fault line 15 miles offshore suddenly shifted against each other, violently lurching 6 to 10 feet in opposite directions. The result was one of the worst uh, earthquakes in Japan's history. It killed 6,433 people. More than 400,000 buildings were irreparably damaged. One-fifth of the city's population was left instantly homeless. The destruction unleashed by those two tectonic plates depicts, I think, what happens when, Christians, uh, when Christian bonds unequally with a non-Christian. Two people committed to each other, but going in different directions can only lead to trouble, to disaster. <laughs> so does that mean, you say, well, does that mean that as a Christian, uh, Paul is telling us not to have any contact with unbelievers? No. <laughs> uh, certainly not. I mean, in fact, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, the Apostle Paul tells the church that if they were to, have, uh, were to have nothing to do with immoral people, then they would, that would mean they would have to be removed completely from um, the world. Does it mean then that we can't collaborate with unbelievers in our workplaces or in our schools or in our, in, in our city to help those places flourish? No. The better question really is this. In working together, in partnering together, will you have to compromise your identity with Christ? Again, the primary thing that Paul here is commanding is for us to be distinct as Christ followers. As Paul told us back in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, maybe you remember that from a couple of weeks ago we talked about this. In that verse... Um, he talks about that in Christ, we have become entirely new creatures, right? We've not just become a better version of ourselves uh, or a more uh, moral version of ourselves. Um, the gospel is not something you can just have tacked on to your life. No, the moment that you've placed your faith in, in Jesus Christ, you become a new creation. And your life has been reordered. And now, listen, now you are marching to God's drumbeat. So let me ask you something. Has that happened to you? Have you had such a radical collision with the gospel 
that you have been made entirely new? Are you marching, however imperfectly, uh, imperfectly, but with the daily help of the Holy Spirit, are you marching to the drumbeat of God's kingdom? Listen, if that hasn't happened, maybe what's happened is you've just tried to add religion to your old life. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, referring to the church, says, you are the salt of the earth, um, but if salt loses its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? You're the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. He's describing us, what we are to be collectively. He's telling us not to withdraw from our world and society. No, he's telling us to be a visible, distinct, attractive community gathered around him. Are those words that someone would use to describe us here at First Free? I pray that it is. I pray that it will continue to be. So how does that happen? How can we remain in the world and yet distinct from the world? Well, Paul would suggest that we do that by understanding our identity. You know, on Friday night, a, a teenager grabs the car keys and heads out the door and um, the father says, son, daughter, remember who you are. <laughs> That's what Paul's instruction to us here is. Believer, remember who you are. Paul tells us the first thing we need to remember is we need to remember that we're the temple of God. Look with me at verse 16. For we are the temple of the living God, as God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. As the church, see, we... We're not just another institution in the neighborhood of South Minneapolis. We're, we're, we're not just another, uh, you know, like a school or, or a club. Um, nor are we just some uh, social service that's here to meet the, the needs of our neighbors. No, we are the place of God's presence, the church, individually in our life together. In the Old Testament, the temple was certainly a place for the people to come to worship, but it was also much more than that. It, the, the, the temple was meant to put God on display to the world. The temple told the world that God was Israel's treasure. It spoke of God's beauty and of, of God's companionship with his people through his lamp-like word, bread-filled tables, and, and incense-filled prayers. It hinted at the beauties and mysteries of God's heaven. It spoke of blood shed for the forgiveness of sin. And most of all, most of all, the temple said that God lived right there among his people and God loved his people and dwelled among them. I, it's important for us 
to remember that we are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in us. We as Christians, we we put God on display, his glory on display. We feed uh, people who are starving for the greatness of God. That's who we are. We need to remember that. We're the temple of God. Second, Paul says, we need to remember that we're the people of God. He, he says, look at there, middle of verse 16, he says, I will be their people and they shall be their God and they shall be my people. Paul quotes from the Old Testament uh, the promise of God's intimacy and applies it to us, the, the, the church. God is our God and we are his people. <laughs> In other words, We've been set apart to be God's own possession. We were at one time, you know, nameless nobodies, orphans and and castaways. But now, catch this, we're God's chosen people. We are God's special possession, purchased and and, and prized, his glad and, and free slaves. And when we understand that reality of who we are, It'll drive us to say, you know, I want to separate myself from sin. I want to strive for holiness. Third, Paul says, you know what you need to do? You need to remember that you're children of God. Look with me at verse 18. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Paul's point is that that we've been adopted by God. We're we're children of the Father. (laughs) And as children, you know, begin to look and behave more and more like their parents. You ever seen that in your life, you know? So we are to be moving to resemble more and more of our Heavenly Father. Craig Barnes, a pastor, tells a story about when he was a child and his father, a, a minister, brought home a 12-year-old boy named Roger. Roger's parents had died from a drug overdose. Barnes says there was no one to care for Roger. So my folks decided that they just raise him as if he were one of their own sons. At first, it was quite difficult for Roger to adjust to his new home, an environment free of heroin-addicted adults. Every day, several times a day, I heard my parents saying to Roger, no, 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 that's not how we behave in this family. No, 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 you don't have to scream or fight or hurt other people to get what you want. No, 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 Roger, we expect you to show respect in this family. And in time, Roger began to change. Now, Barnes says, did did Roger have to make all those changes in order to become part of the family? No. He was made part of the family simply by the grace of my father. But did he have to do a lot of hard work because he was now in the family? (laughs) You bet he did. It was tough for him to change, and he had to work at it. But he was motivated by gratitude for the incredible love he had received. Friends, let me ask you something. 
Do you have a lot of hard work to do now that the Spirit has adopted you into God's family? You bet you do. I do. But not in order to become a son or daughter of the Heavenly Father. No. No, you make those changes because you are a son or daughter. And every time uh, you uh, start to revert back to that old addictions of, of sin, the Holy Spirit will say to you, no, 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 no. Listen, that's not how we act in this family. <laughs> See, Paul doesn't want his readers or us to live like we did before we became a new creation made in his image. Now, we have been called to be radically distinct, marching to the beat of the kingdom of God. For decades now, people have been telling us that our existence on this planet is just an accident. It's cosmic coincidence um, that human beings have nothing more, become nothing more than evolved uh, animals. They've told us that we, when we die, we'll simply cease to exist, we'll return to the earth from which we came. You think about that and you say, so then why are we surprised when people act like animals? <laughs> Satisfying every physical appetite with no sense of self-control or propriety. Why are we surprised when life becomes so cheap that a person will kill another human being simply because they bumped him along the street or because someone got cut off on the highway? Why are we surprised when so many people live aimlessly, drifting from one relationship to another, one party to another, with no sense of real purpose? If this life is all there is, if there are no eternal consequences, if there's no God to whom we must give an account, why shouldn't people just live for today and do whatever they please? <laughs> but as followers of Christ, listen, those of us who march to the drumbeat of God, we know better than that, right? We understand where we come from why we're here and, and what we're created for. So we should live like it. We should value life. We should control our appetites. We should take care of our bodies. We should respect other people's rights and, and property. We should, as Paul tells us in Ephesians, put away all that bitterness and anger and wrath and quarreling and, and slanderous talk. These are behaviors that demean us and demean others. So we should take them off like a pair of uh, old, dirty clothes. <laughs> Throw them away. Here's Paul's invitation to us. Not just to us, but the church of Corinth. Look with me. Chapter 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, since you are a temple of God, since you are God's people, since you are a child of God's, then let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. In other words, Apostle Paul is inviting us, he's saying, strive for purity. 
I use that word purity. The Apostle Paul here uses the word holiness. <laughs> I use the word purity because that word holiness, well, it, it doesn't sound especially appealing, uh, appealing these days, does it? I mean, holy isn't one of the 10 wannabes of our culture. <laughs> um, People want to be popular. They want to be famous. They want to be, you know, good looking. They want to be, you know, they want to have some fun. But you don't see many Instagram headlines offering 10 secrets to a more, more holy life. <laughs> now, most people, holiness sounds like a, like a stuffed shirt. It sounds boring and stifless and, and joyless. But see, the root idea of holiness is otherness. To be holy is to be set apart from the rest, to be different, to be distinctive. And since God is the ultimate other, (laughs) holiness also means being like God. Now, there are some ways, we all admit, there are some ways that we cannot be like God. I mean, we can never be all-powerful, all-knowing, you know, everywhere present like God. But God is also good and kind and merciful and just and faithful and pure and generous and true. And we can be those things. And we can't be perfect. I mean, nobody can be perfect, but we can be excellent. And when we are, I got to tell you, we will stand out in a culture of moral confusion. Unfortunately, I have to admit, We're not doing a very good job of that these days, are we? It's getting more difficult to tell the difference between the cottage cheese and the apple butter, isn't it? The pollster George Barna has done an extensive survey of people who claim to have a a personal life-changing relationship with Christ, and he finds an appalling lack of distinction from the rest of the population when it comes to lifestyle and behavior. Christian couples are almost as likely to get a divorce as the rest of the population. Christian singles are just about as likely to be active sexually as single people who are not Christians. Nearly 50% of people who claim to be born-again followers of Christ believe that it's morally acceptable to live with someone without being married. Listen, that's only 10% less than the general population. Only 10% less. No wonder so many people have a hard time taking Christianity seriously. They see no discernible difference in the quality of our lives. So let me ask you something. Suppose someone were to follow you around for a week or two. Would they see a discernible difference in the quality of your life Or would it look pretty much like everybody else's? Suppose they were to listen in on your conversations in the hallway or in the lunchroom or in the locker room. Would they hear gossip, backstabbing, foul language, sexual innuendos? What if they sat beside you as you surfed channels on your TV or on the internet, on your computer? Would they find you lingering over shows or sites that are excessively violent or exploitive or pornographic? 
Suppose they were to follow you around as you did your daily work. Whatever, whatever that daily work might be. Would they find you wasting company time or money, <laughs> losing your temper when things go wrong, humiliating people, cutting corners on jobs when no one's looking? If they were to sit at the dinner table in your home with you, would they be surprised at the lack of meaningful conversation between you and your spouse? Or at how harsh or inattentive you were with your children? Suppose they were go shopping with you. Would they see you spending money as freely as everybody else on things that really don't matter and really don't last? Friends, our behavior ought to be distinctive as Christ followers. So distinctive that it causes people to stop and take notice. Not because we're so weird, but because it's so attractive, so excellent. That's what it means to be a person of distinction, showing people a better way to live. Listen, friends, as Christ followers, we are called to be radically distinct, marching to the drumbeat of the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you. Thank you for the fact that you have indeed adopted us into your family, that we can be called your children, and we can address you as Father. What an amazing truth. Lord, continue to change us through the power of your Holy Spirit to become more like you. And in that way, Lord, might we continue to be distinct <laughs> from our world around us because we are marching to the drumbeat of your kingdom. We pray this in your son's precious and holy name. Amen.